Hello, this is It's Mental Podcast. Today, uh, I know I say that every time, but today we truly have a special guest. Uh, it's uh, Ben uh, He is not a comedian nor artist, but it's uh, someone I met uh, very specially from... Hey, Bunny. I uh, am hey ben, in where the are UK, you? living in the countryside. Ah... Um, I am still working as a data analyst, but no longer managing a team as I was when we worked together. Originally, I'm also mm -hmm. from the UK. Where are I'm you from? from? Lancashire, up in the north. Um, but I have lived in the south of England for 17 years or so, for most of my adult life, apart from when I was in Berlin. Uh -huh. yeah, so, so I moved there for work actually because my boyfriend was headhunted to work for one of the big German names in, in Berlin um, and it was a good opportunity for him we mm -hmm. we'd actually been traveling at the time um, so we already had everything packed up and in storage in the UK and decided we would have a new adventure having been sort of traveling around the world and moved to Berlin uh, and we both ended up working in the same company in the end Mm -hmm. do you, do you, uh, so there for four and a half in years in total. Um, originally, I guess uh, we joked about being Brexit refugees, um, not particularly wanting to go back to a, a mm -hmm. post-Brexit UK, although things changed, I think, with the pandemic and not being able to see people as easily. And we decided to move back uh, and give the give country life in the UK a go. Mm -hmm. yeah, cool. uh, through work and how did we meet? <laughs> as you worked for me through interviewing mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. you were yeah, I think yeah, you were, yeah. were you the first people first person recruited? I can't remember which, which order I recruited the team in now but you were definitely near the beginning I remember you impressing lots of interviewers <laughs> especially when we start, when you started talking about being a comedian as well actually I think that was something that really piqued people's interest <laughs> cool. And uh, now I'm glad that I don't need to pitch data analysts that I'm a comedian. Now, now you get to do the thing that makes your heart happy. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I feel, oh, finally I made it. I made it uh, through Abed's Lost Gate. Yeah. Uh, isn't life amazing? Mm-hmm. So um, we, I, I think uh, our uh, relationship as uh, uh, you are my, you were my supervisor. Like I think it's quite interesting because we talk a lot about mental health. Uh, although normally, like in the work environment, uh, it's uh, not some uh, experience uh, people would brought up. But uh, through our work relationship, you told me a lot about your uh, dysfunctional family and your. Uh, your your dad, uh, his uh, issue, and your mom, his, uh, uh, your mom her issue. Uh, I find that's uh, quite interesting, and I think it's a very good way to build trust. Because I I saw you not only as uh, the person who managed me, but also as uh, like a person who has emotions and uh, has uh, his own life uh, going on and being vulnerable. Uh, so I think that's quite cool. 
uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your uh, yeah, I, I think actually first about topic. even why we spoke about this when when I was your mm -hmm. supervisor, which because um, like you said, this is a bit unusual and part of my mental health journey, I would say is um, there's a part of it that became about trying to help others um, who were in a who were in a similar situation. And um, I did not have this same conversation with with everybody at work as I had with you. Um, I think I realized sometimes people were people that I worked with were struggling with mental health as well. And I wanted them to feel that they could. Um, I wanted them to feel that they could talk about it. And if it was impacting them, them at work, then that was that was also OK to talk about it, because because getting to that point myself took a very very long time and I punished myself a lot um, and I pushed through things in work. I worked through an, possibly through a nervous break, breakdown um, because, well, why wouldn't you? Because it was just a mental health problem and it's not like I was properly ill and all these things that I told myself. Um, so that was that's kind of part of why I ended up talking about it to, to some people at work. But um, my the broad arc of my mental health journey would be well actually the, in a really short bit there was a lot of time being very messed up there was a period of time trying to deal with the fact that i was pretty messed up mostly the fact that i was very very angry i was angry at everything and anything and um i saw counselors i was also medicated as well i had antidepressants so we went through that period of like, well, it's just everybody else's fault and I'm very angry at everything. And um, the anger kind of mixed in a lot with my overall mental health. That then was beginning to realize, oh, my problem is I was an alcoholic. And then getting sober and then starting to readdress my mental health through sobriety and realizing the reason I was angry uh, was partly because I was an alcoholic and this was my reaction to a lot of things and um, then being able to move on and go through therapy again, but go through therapy as somebody who understood then what my problem was um, and not to hide from it. Um, but even then, I'd say there's this period where I was handling it and I was having therapy, but I was still quite secretive about it maybe, um, as in my friends knew, but um, it wasn't something I spoke about widely and maybe there was a bit of um, not shame, but knowing that it wasn't something you talked about. Mm. And then the final mm -hmm. bit is going, actually, there is no shame in any of these problems, um, both the alcoholism and the mental health and the other people experience them, too. And if I speak about those experiences, then other people can maybe hear about how I went through things. Uh, they can realize that they're not alone with it um, and maybe get something from me. So I think, yeah, that's kind of the yeah. stages of my mental health journey um, in large. Wow, that, that sounds a very long journey. How old are you? You look like <laughs> such a, a lie. I am 40. It is, a, <laughs> I mean, 20 years, really. I mean, yeah, I mean, my my drinking was pretty much alcoholic drinking from the start and it's how I coped with life you know in my in my late teens and early 20s 
actually mid-20s and so on. Alcohol um, was a key part of how I coped with life. Um, my late 20s, getting on for 30, is this kind of like turning point in my drinking where it got like very problematic to the point where I started to seek help, but not necessarily realizing it was the alcohol to start with. I started seeking mental health, uh, support mental health. 30 is when I got sober. Um, mm -hmm. And then, yeah, maybe like two or three years, both recovery and sobriety. So it's, it's a long time. It's a big old journey, mm -hmm. um, I'd wow. say. Mm -hmm. You used the word that uh, at one point you realized uh, you are alcoholic. What made you to realize it? And uh, di didn't you know it um, the whole time? Possibly. As I said, like my drinking was not normal at the start. And I, whenever somebody questioned my drinking before I, ha before I realized I had a problem, if somebody questioned my drinking, I would joke and say, it's just fine. It's fine. I'm an alcoholic. Like, that's just how I drink. And mm -hmm. then when I realized it was a problem, mm -hmm. I said I had a problem with alcohol. I didn't, I, I distanced myself from the idea of being an alcoholic. Um, and basically my, the first AA meeting I went to is, um, is when I heard other people speak about things and I was like, oh, right, yes, I am the same as you. And, and hearing their stories made me go, okay, that's fine. I'm an alcoholic. That's, that is the word for it now that I've you know, listened to, to other people. So, um, yeah, that acceptance, that realization came with hearing other people telling their story and me realizing their story was the same as mine. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay, right. Then there we are. That's the problem. Now we can do something about it. And by, by accepting the word uh, alcoholic, uh, do you think it uh, changed your behavior and mindset in some um, ways? I think the first thing that it did is, you know, it sets out, there's only one thing that I couldn't do in life, and that was drink alcohol. You know, everything else is fair game. But um, mm. once I realized that's something that I cannot do, um, and I should... I, I think also like that knowing that like the anger and the drinking was always perceived as anger followed by drinking when actually you know, it was drinking followed by anger and if I knew well the start of the problem is the alcohol and then the emotions are what you know you know the emotions and all the problems are what come after that meant um you know recognizing uh that that was the the problem was very empowering um it still took a lot of time to, to deal with it. Um, but it was definitely, I think without kind of accepting, right, that is my problem. I would never have been able to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, dealing with your alcoholism issues, uh, like uh, you said, it took you two, three years. What was the process? Um, so followed? I got sober through, um, through Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I would absolutely recommend this as a way to get sober to anybody who's got drinking problems. I think um, a lot of people have issues with the fact that, you know, the origins are in a quite a Christian kind of thing, but it was always uh, perceived as a, like, it's a God of your understanding. And um, so part of that process was, for, 
you know, first of all, okay, I'm an alcoholic. Second of all, I have no power over my drinking. Like this is something that I can't control um, myself. And realizing if it's something I can't control myself, then some, I, then I have to have something else to help me. Um, and in the early days, um, I, I went to AA meetings, I spoke to people, I made tea at meetings, I put chairs out, I did service is what we call it. So, you know, one thing is like going, second thing is doing service. And the third thing is trying to help other people. And, you know, these were the, the, found, the, the foundations of getting sober. And when I heard somebody say, you know what, I, I, I don't believe in a, you know, a Christian God. I don't believe in a, you know, Abrahamic God of any kind. Just God is what is, is this is the word for the stuff that I can't explain. So I turn up, I help others, I do service and I stay sober and I don't need to know how that happens or how it works. But it works. And I can just call that like this miracle um god and i was like okay that's mm -hmm. that's fine that works for me i like that idea um just as long as i'm making the effort and i think that's that is part of the process you have to realize it is work it is hard work mm -hmm. um you know a lot of people said you know sobriety is not for the people want who want it it's not for the people who need it it's for the people who work for it um and the next stage then is uh you have to really do some hard analysis. Like you have to look at, you know, first of all, um, you start with everybody who's annoyed you, upset you, pissed you off, whatever in life. You, you do big, long, it's called an inventory. You have to do all of this about the other people. And then you have to look at the part you played in all of this. Um, and that's really hard. A lot of people don't don't want to or just can't face looking at like, what was their part in all this damage in their life, all this chaos, all these problems? Um, but you go through that process and, you know, and you, you have to tell somebody else about it. That's part of the process. And at the end, you know, my then sponsor was like, you're a pretty garden variety, boring alcoholic. There is nothing special about you. <laughs> you know, there's nothing special about your story. I've heard this story hundreds of times, you know, um, these things that you hold on to lots of shame about that you, it, you know what you can do now is not repeat that again you know that is that is where you have some agency now to not pick up a drink again not allow those behaviors to repeat themselves and try to you know forgive yourself um, mm -hmm. as part of the process that's really hard i think you know forgiving others was overall quite easy there was one person who really really was uh, yeah i was really annoyed with and really upset with and that one took a long time um to go through that process mm -hmm. of apologizing to others and forgiving others um but that means you know once you've let go of this you know you've let go of it like i'm not just gonna hold on to this stuff and be angry about it or bitter about it the final bit of kind of trying to forgive yourself is much harder I would say um, it was very easy to still punish myself over things that I felt I wasn't doing well enough in life. Um, when my peers would say, you got up, you stayed sober, 
you helped other people, you'd managed to go to work, like you did a lot today, actually, if you just managed to, you know, get up and, and take part in life um, and look after yourself, uh, you know, and you just have to keep doing this and hopefully, you know, eventually get to the part that you're, you're more accepting of yourself. Um, so yeah, I said, well, I said it take two or three years. I would, I don't say I'm, I'm recovered. Um, I don't believe that an alcoholic you know, can do the work and then spontaneously, okay, right, I'm, I'm all good now. I could start drinking again. That would be a stupid thing to say. Um, but I think, yeah, that initial work was a few years of, you know, going through that stuff, um, looking at myself, also going through therapy. So I, that was another thing I did in parallel. Um, I, I saw a new therapist. I got to talk about the the many things that had happened in my life around the alcoholism, before the alcoholism, in my childhood, um, and work through those things as well. Wow. So um, when you had your first AA meeting, did you immediately know that, oh, you are alcoholics and you want to put the work in? Or was there some back and forth? Um, the, my first AA meeting, yes, I was like completely in, but it was not my first attempt at getting sober. Um, I it took It took me about 18 months so basically when my after my dad died as a result of his alcoholism um basically he got he had stomach cancer and from that diagnosis like i started drinking very heavily that was you know the the joke amongst my friends was like how do we cope with our parents alcoholism well we get drunk that's what we did mm. um and after he died about a month after he died i realized i was not able to rein in my drinking it was excessive it was every day um i was passing out every night um so i went to the doctor and i said i'd read about this drug called um, antabuse which you can't drink on so you take a tablet that's it like when the cravings hit if you i mean you can try to drink on it but you'll be very ill um but my initial thing was like, well, if I can just stay sober for a while, then everything will be fine. And my doctor said, well, what do you want your long term relationship with alcohol to be? And uh, I said, well, of course, I want to be able to drink. And he said, and if you can't, <laughs> I was like, oh, we'll deal with that when I get to it. Um, so I dried out for about six weeks. I went back to drinking. I pretty quickly got back to square one. I was miserable. I was drinking every day. I was very, very unhappy. But summer was coming. And therefore, I was like, well, of course, I'm not going to get sober for summer because who would be sober in summer? That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, I lasted. So I drank through to actually through to Manchester Gay Pride that summer in August, following which I had a three day hangover. It was really awful. Um, at which point I was like, okay, well, now I've not drunk because I had a three day hangover, so I'll stay sober. Um, and I lasted about three months that time. And actually, when I when I started, when I went back out um, to get drunk, I had forgotten how miserable I was. Really, really miserable, depressed, um, unhappy with everything. And I started drinking again with like no thought to what the consequences were. And that lasted about another three months. And along the way, um, my then husband's best friend had also got sober and the hints were there. Like I was asked, you know, do you want to do something about it? And I was like, nope, absolutely not. <laughs> um, 
but basically the the catalyst that got me in was I had gone out I'd actually gone to get another prescription for that same drug antabuse and I had listened to my doctor and his words and I went out and got drunk again because I didn't really like what he said um (laughs) and I scared a close friend like I really like um uh, I was um, a bit violent with him thinking I was being playful but actually he, I was not so playful and that was the catalyst that was like okay I can't do this anymore and therefore when I went to my first meeting I was like okay I'm here I hear what you're saying great I'm in I don't want to be that person who's who has scared one of his best friends that was that was the thing that I was like I don't want to repeat this behavior um, and it was at that stage a lot less about me than it was about the consequences of my actions um but from that point forwards i was like nope i'm committed um i will largely do what people tell me you know and they said look Mm -hmm. 90 meetings in 90 days that was a thing i was like okay right that's what i'm gonna do um you know and these suggestions that people made was just like you do these things you you will you will stay sober just keep following these i mean they were called suggestions but that you know they're like if you want to stay sober follow the suggestions and if you ignore everybody Mm -hmm. then you know you might not stay sober um so i yeah i committed i followed the suggestions um i got a sponsor which is the thing i was just like i'm doing this let's get on with it the first one actually didn't work out. I, t- um, I, I then had a second sponsor, but I tried not to miss a beat. I was like, I don't, I don't want to stop. I'm going to keep pushing and pushing. And like, I want to get through this um, because, because I don't want to drink. I don't want to be that person again. Wow. So uh, how does AA meetings work? Do you need to pay? Uh, do you know, uh, have you attended some ones in, in Berlin? I did. I mean, I haven't actually been since the start of the pandemic um for let's say reasons <laughs> N- nothing to do with aa more to do with me but um i went to i've been to aa i started in london that's where i got sober mm. um you do not have to pay um it is self-supporting and therefore um therefore they're reliant on donations you know these meetings run on donations but if you turn up and you are penniless then nobody's going to ask you for money and if you turn up and you've got a job, <laughs> then, uh, you know, people like, you know, think about the cost of your last drink. Um, so, you know, it's very self you know, it's entirely self-supporting, but, you know, if you can't afford to put anything in, you can't afford to put anything in. Um, so you don't pay, you're there, you know, nobody's forced to go. Well, at least not in the UK. In the US, sometimes it's a mandatory requirement if you get like a, a drink driving sentence or stuff like that, but that's not what happens in the UK. You know, you go there if you want to. Um, I also went, um, I visited a meeting in Berlin um, before we went traveling. When I went traveling, I also, I went, I went to one meeting in Peru, uh, in Lima. Um, I went to some meetings in New Zealand. One, which was really funny because I just had a huge argument with my boyfriend and I turned up and said, "I, I really need to be here. I've just had a huge argument. I'm really angry. And, you know, out of this room of strangers, somebody just went, and what was your part in it? I was like, oh, screw you. I was so angry. And, you know, at the end of the meeting, I was like, yeah, I've, I've got to go home and apologize, haven't I? Like, I, I have done wrong here. You know, and this is like kind of one of these, like, you know, small benefits of a room full of strangers. Um, 
and they will help you know they're there um i also went to meetings in australia as well i was there i've done that a few times actually because my my mum lives in australia um yeah and then when i moved to berlin i was um uh, i mostly went to the queer meetings there um uh because i am i am gay and the queer fellowship was a quite a special thing but i also went to things like the meditation meetings um because that's another kind of thing that we do meditating together so at the end do you start to use the aa meeting as a way of meeting friends everywhere you travel you go to meet aa meetings yeah, you, instead of a bar you really can and that was like yeah. a core part of my social group in berlin um yeah, you absolutely can. Like people do turn up and they're like, hey, I'm visiting from another city. I want some tips, like, you know, good places to eat, things to go and see in this city. Uh, does anybody fancy joining me for stuff? And mm-hmm. um, sure, like it, it's a, it is a ready-made friendship group in, in some ways. Or like I certainly found that with, um, with the meetings I attended. You know, I mostly met like the travelers who were quite often um, that I met were American. Uh, you know, it's much bigger, I think, in the States. Um, but, you know, they travel and they come and a lot of them like, yeah, the first thing I do is find out where the recovery is in a city that I'm going to. You know, I just want to be uh, comfortable that, you know, I've got some people to speak to. Wow, that that's a cool travel tips. Um, uh, I think that's nice. Um, so I also want to ask you, you talk about uh, uh, you realize like drinking and the anger always come together um and uh uh what made you start to drink from the first place um i i mean i just think i was born with it i inherited it off my father maybe um but so w- I, w- were you with uh, like a water cup bottle when you came out <laughs> <laughs> apparently my dad used to give me cider when i was a baby to keep me quiet um so i did but i started drinking at maybe when i was 12 or 13 and i know that even at that age there was nothing normal about my drinking i i if, it, even it, for a 13 you, year old you went, like for 30 years old they shouldn't be drinking at all <laughs> yeah yeah they shouldn't be drinking at all but you know when you're when alcohol is prevalent in your family you know, it's thing. Um, but yeah, I can look at it. And there was a lot of us that drank at school. We used to get, we used to drink on Friday nights out on the playground or before school discos. And the normal thing was to get like one meter bottles of white cider. It's quite strong, you know, 8.4%. But I was the one who usually bought two bottles because one might not last. And, mm. and, you know, and that's, you know, when I look back at it, that's like, sure, everybody else bought one bottle and I bought two just because. So you can kind of see, like, right from day one, there was something that was, was not normal um, about it. And the anger, I think, I mean, one thing about the anger is like when I, uh, uh, you know, this was like a key problem for me because I just was often in a rage, you know, as an adult, like raging about everything. It's not a, it is not a nice state to be in. Um, I've also had rage when I was sober and I never realized how exhausting it is was another thing, you know, just being angry is, you know, it's such a trial. Um, and yeah, I think just like everything and everything, anything and everything annoyed me. It was always somebody else's fault. And I, and I kind of thought that that was why I drank. 
that I just like all these things that happened to me or things that people did were, were the reasons that I drank. And what, um, what I didn't realize is this is a common thread with addicts. And, uh, you know, in, in the big book of AA, it talks about needing to be the director of the show. And, you know, if everybody just fulfilled their roles in life, then it would be fine. If they just did what I wanted them to do and expected them to do, um, then, you know, then I wouldn't have any problems. But of course, that's not how life works. And it's not how people work. Um, and I, you know, other people may suffer this and not be addicts, but it is pretty common for addicts and alcoholics that this is an expectation, you know, that they're hard done by because, you know, life doesn't treat them well and people don't treat them well and people don't do what they want to. But this, this anger that I had, you know, and, and going to therapy um, when I was still drinking and just talking about all the people who've made me angry and how much I drank because of it. Um, you know, it's ridiculous. And at one point, my therapist asked me to keep a, a diary of how much I drank. And by Thursday, I got to 100 units in the week. And I was like, well, I'm not doing this because that's just a stupid number. <laughs> you know, and, and not, you know, she was dropping hints. She gave me a book. She pointed to me about it's it was called Potatoes, Not Prozac. It's a book about um, sugar addiction and mental health, actually, and about how um, a lot of people suffer mental health problems because of a sugar addiction and the impact sugar has in our lives. Um, but actually, the, the person who wrote it realized that a lot of the people that suffered from this were actually alcoholics. Um, and, and her theory was, well, alcohol metabolizes into sugar in the body, mm -hmm. and therefore you're left with this sort of sugar um, sugar addiction and she had like a couple of pages in the back and my therapist was like you should read the pages in the back and I read all of the book about the sugar and I was like oh this sugar addiction is really interesting and you know and I missed the point that she was you know trying to drop the hint that maybe there was a cause of my problems that I wasn't um I wasn't looking at so you know that anger I can't re I can't really remember it not being there as a teenager I would bottle a lot of things up. Mm -hmm. So my frustrations, I would just kind of push down and push down. And then my dad would recognize that that's what happened. And he would start an argument with me. That's how, that's how my dad dealt with knowing that I had anger issues, that he'd just start arguments and that I'd scream the place down. And, uh, and, and that was the, you know, problem solved apparently, you know, just wind me up and wind me up until I exploded at him. Um, you know, because he didn't know how to deal with either, but he knew that something had to give. Um, yeah, so anger, anger was a big thing, but I think the, the thing that getting sober gave me about understanding this anger was a lot of it was fear. Mm -hmm. Actually, I didn't realize that fear was the, was the emotion that happened before the anger. Mm -hmm. It was so fleeting that I didn't, you know, that if there were th things that were threats to me, things and i say threats to me like you know you don't do something that i'm expecting you to do and therefore i look stupid mm -hmm. you know at work if somebody doesn't do their job do i look stupid and if i look stupid then i'm i'm you know i'm not happy and i didn't realize that you know i was just going through fear mm -hmm. and one of the things that you have to do in this like looking at yourself is like it's called a fear inventory all of the things you're afraid of um, and you just realize, wow, there, there was a lot that I was afraid of, you know, and a lot of things that would provoke me and make me fearful. And therefore, you know, my next reaction was to, to be angry about it and to lash out at things. Um, How did you realize that it was fear? I think that's because, I mean, because that was part of the process, actually, like this, uh, uh, this, um, 
the process of doing the work in AA includes this, what did other people do to me? What was my part in it? Now, what was I afraid of happening in each of these scenarios? Because, um, because part of the, at the core of the process is this, is this belief that um, we need to control things. And if we need to control things, and we must fear of things going wrong. Um, mm-hmm. And therefore, um, you had to try to work out, like, what was it that was causing these reactions? Mm-hmm. And it also was quite, um, you know, and also you had to scratch beyond the surface fear as well. Um, and a lot for me, you try to boil it down to like core fears and some of them are not so unusual. Like one core fear is of being alone. And when you realize actually you're in a world where certainly in my case, I had a husband, Mm -hmm. I had friends, I had family, I had all these people around me. This fear of being alone was kind of ridiculous, but the thought that people would leave me and, you know, uh, that was one core fear. Um, There was another core fear of being poor, actually, Uh, particularly being old and poor. These two things go together. And therefore, a lot of stuff at work is like, well, I can't lose my job because if I lose my job, I lose my ability to control my source of income and ultimately my ability to have money when I'm older. And not be old and poor, um, but you kind of realize that you know there's some very deep-seated things which a lot of humans probably have, but just a lot of humans maybe can understand rationally. Okay, maybe this thing bothers me sometimes, but it shouldn't control yeah. me, and it's maybe irrational. You know, the fear mm-hmm. the fear of being alone when you're surrounded by people is quite an irrational mm-hmm. fear. Um, but um, I read some interesting research actually about. Um, brain development when you're a child, particularly about the, the impact of having your parents, you know, your mother should be with you from, in theory, from zero to 18 months, and your father's important from 12 to 12 to 24 months. And if the parent is absent, your brain doesn't develop um, correctly. And one of the things about this lack of brain development is the fear response is much higher. Um, and your rational brain can't temper the irrational brain like the animal brain so this um you get caught in these cycles of fear that the you know the old animal brain goes like danger Mm -hmm. alert fear warning and it's a very powerful thing because the the front of the brain doesn't have the power to calm it back down and go actually this is very irrational fear um and yeah this I mean, the theory that I read about that, it makes sense like, yeah, okay, my animal brain is very loud. Mm. And uh, when I meditate, which I don't do at the moment, but I do know when I meditate, the animal brain is a lot calmer. Mm. Like, um, uh, and there are ways to kind of deal with these fears through meditation and and trying to make your rational thoughts stronger. Cool. Uh, That brings my next question. Uh, Now you don't have alcohol to cope with your issue. Uh, so when life happens, how do you deal with uh, the stuff? Food, food mostly. Um, uh, I, 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 and I also can't get away from this thing that my my doctor once said to me. I, he was a really good doctor actually. This this GP who who never pushed me and always just kind of said, 
maybe if you drank a bit less and exercised a bit more, things would be fine. And um, he also told me that food is the most commonly used and ineffective antidepressant and exercise is the most underused but effective antidepressant. Um, so food and sugar still it's still a, a thing in my life definitely it's still how I if if I have extreme reactions I tend to binge on food which I know isn't healthy but at the same time I go well I can't say it's not going to kill me because maybe I'll end up diabetic um, but it's not going to have the same immediate impact and consequences that alcohol would have in my life uh, but also I try to exercise and I do um, either I come out of either doing weight training or boxing or something and my mood is better. I know it sets me up for the day well if I go and do some exercise. Um, and now that I'm going, I do something five or six days a week. Um, it's it's really helpful. And I do it at the beginning of the day. I don't have the energy to do it at the end of the day. But I also think doing that at the beginning of the day means like my mental health starts off on mm -hmm. a good footing. Um, so, um, exercise plays a, plays a big role in trying to improve my mental health. Um, I still take antidepressants, a very low dose. Um, I've tried to come off them a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> hasn't, hasn't generally gone well most times. Uh, the last time, yeah, the last time my best friend ended up saying, maybe you shouldn't come off your antidepressants when you hate your job. Um, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Oh, and there was something you else. There were three things UK. at the time that he was just like, oh, and it was, I was moving. Oh, and it was the middle of winter as well. You know, no, it was the middle of winter. And I also, you know, I think I have seasonal affective disorder. My depression is worse in winter. And he was just like, you know, don't do all, you know, don't try to come off your medication when yeah. all these factors yeah. are playing I, a part. Um, I remember I gave you a book talking about the antidepressant at the beginning. <laughs> then a few weeks later, you told me you had a breakdown because you were trying to reduce the medication. Yeah, and it's 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 strange. I think you know this idea of uh, you know this the, the you know the lost connections book. I totally get, and I think that's also um, one of the things that AA provides. You do need people if you have mental health problems. You really do need people to sort through it. Not least of which because normal people do not understand your mental health issues um, and talking to normal people about your mental health issues or alcoholism or addiction or look, my mum had breast cancer. She could not talk to normal people about going through breast cancer and the impact that had on her. And I think this, you know, if you have serious problems in your life or serious things happen to you, the best thing that you can do is speak to other people who understand that problem. Um, and that, um, like I said, I haven't been to an AA meeting for, for quite a long time, but I still have alcoholics in my life. I think it's important to have alcoholics that I speak to uh, because um, A, they understand me. B, they will call me on my bullshit. Actually, this is, a, this is another thing I think about not being self-indulgent. Um, and... Uh, I don't want to sound callous when I say, you know, if you have mental health problems, I, I don't think you can be indulgent in them. I don't think you can just blame everything on having the problem and not mm -hmm. doing anything about it. 
I think, you know, as we've talked about, if you start doing something about it, if you start trying to gain some control and some agency, sure, you're not necessarily cured, yeah. but things will be better. And the lows won't last as long. And you might also be able to recognize this is a low, but I will come out of the low at some point. Uh, it's not going to last forever. Um, so, you know, I did think, you know, how do I deal with it? How do I deal with being an alcoholic? How do, how do I deal with how depression? I talk about these things. I accept that I have these things. Um, I try to take the actions that prevent it getting worse. And now if I hit about a depression, I sleep, I take some rest. And I think we're saying about like where this played a part in work that before I worked in Berlin and I would say Germans are a lot better about health issues. They're a lot more accepting that if you are unwell, you should yeah. be at home resting. Whereas Londoners are, if you are on hell, you should take every medication you could find and you should be in the office. You know, like, unless you're literally dying, you should be in the office and this isn't healthy, you know? Um, so I think Germany did teach me this, which is, um, you have to look after yourself. You have to accept uh, that sometimes you need a break. You said that you still talk to alcoholics. Uh, are they recovering uh, uh, alcoholics or they are still drinking heavily? Um, I have a... I have a mixture in my life, let's say. Um, I still have uh, one, uh, one of my best friends um, who's sober through AA. I have friends who moderate their drinking, knowing that it's a problem. I speak to people about people in their lives who are very much active alcoholics and what to try to do about that. Um, and how to try to support them. Um, at the moment, I don't have any, do I have any full-blown alcoholics in my life? No, not that are part of my everyday life, I would say. Um, occasionally they crop, crop up and I can do what I can to help them. But principally, look, what I can do is say, sure, I hear what your problem is. I can tell you how I solve that problem. The rest is up to you. Like it's, it's your, your decision. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think most often just through the number of people I bump into at work, work is where I come across the most, most active alcoholics and addicts. Yeah, but mostly really? because I what? recognize I recognize the behaviors, and so there have been a you know a bit the same as like when people when I recognize somebody has a mental health issue, I will talk about mental health issues. When I recognize somebody possibly has a problem with alcohol, I will talk about having a problem with alcohol. Um, but like. One of the key things I think is like, if people aren't ready to deal with their problems, then they're not ready to deal with their problems. You can't tell them to deal with their problems. Mm -hmm. You can tell people how you dealt with your problems and leave them to think about it. And I have done that quite a few times at work. Um, I've mm -hmm. actually had to go to hospital with a colleague, with somebody who overdosed at work. 
Um, yeah. What? Add a um, And, you know, it was a big, it was a big issue when it happened. And my manager was like, what the hell do I do? And I was like, you can deal with the rest of the company and I will go to hospital with this person because you, as their manager, can't help them. Like, there's nothing you're going to say that's going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. And me, as somebody who mm -hmm. has a history, can hopefully be there for them and say, look, mm -hmm. you know, there's a solution to your problems if you want mm -hmm. it. Um, on that occasion, mm -hmm. they had another 18 months of making a mess of themselves. Um, they, did get, mm -hmm. they did get clean, actually, in the end. Um, and I have seen them since. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, what do, well, you know, you interact with a lot of people at work. So of course, statistically speaking, mm. this is where you will come across yeah. the people uh, more often. Yeah, I, so you talk about you cannot uh, f um, ask someone to get help if they are not ready to get help. Um, but uh, I, I understand that, that's totally right. Uh, but how do you deal with your like uh, um, uh, mental health, your emotions when this keeps happening. For example, if someone who obviously has a problem and uh, constantly ask you for help and for uh, support, but they are not doing any work, actual work in, in it, and uh, you keep helping, keep helping, do you uh, cut it off at some point. Uh, how do you deal with uh, this type of relationship? Yeah, to um, I mean, I've definitely same. had to do it in recovery. There are people that I had to s stop responding to. Like, it's pretty normal for like everybody exchanges telephone numbers and says, you know, if you need somebody to speak to, I'm here. It's pretty normal. I had one person who uh, was also quite inappropriate with me as well in terms of like sexually inappropriate with some of the things that they said but they were also just you know not doing anything about the fact that they just uh kept relapsing and come back in and all i could do was say look my recommendation is you go and do something about this and that's that's all i'm gonna say i'm, I'm not I just had to say, look, I'm not, I don't want to engage in this conversation further because it's not helpful. Actually, it's not helping either of us. Um, mm -hmm. Like, you know what you've got to do um, about this. Um, so I've had that happen um, with people in recovery. Um, uh, I have got a friend who jokes about, are you going to get the leaflets out? Because, <laughs> uh, you know, they've got ups and downs and, you know, they recognize there's, there's an issue. Um, they recognize some degree, some things are not controllable, um, but they're not ready to completely stop. Um, and you know, in that case, you know, it's a friend, it's, they, you know, they've done therapy as well. They have done, they have done things and we kind of laugh and joke about it a little bit, actually. Um, and I was like, you know, sure we can talk about this, we can do something about it if you want to do something about it. Um, but I would still maintain the same line. Look, sure, we can talk about it, but we could also talk about doing something about it. Um, I, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I haven't come up against it too often. I mean, the unfortunate thing is uh, certainly in AA, 
if people disappear, they disappear. You know, um, and if people, um, if people really want to do something about it, um, they will stick around. And um, mm -hmm. so I think it's, it, I think that's part of, part of how things work actually. Like if you want to turn up to AA meetings and bitch and moan, I mean, you can, you can do that too. And everyone will be like, keep coming back. And some people, are, you know, some people take a long time to adjust, you know, but, you know, people would genuinely say, look, just keep coming. You know, eventually, if you just keep coming, like you will kind of get there, like if you invest the time. But if you don't invest the time, you know, there's one thing that will probably happen. And that's that, you know, you will start, you will start drinking again and you won't. It's, it's very it's very naff in some ways that people talk about the miracle of recovery. You know, they talk about how blessed mm -hmm. they are to be an alcoholic. And what you realize is, and again, with the, with the, the links with mental health, we, we get to go through this toolkit of like how to live life on life's terms. And there's a lot of people that are suffering and they don't, you know, don't necessarily have addiction, um, but they suffer with mental health and they're struggling to get to grips with like, how do I deal with this? Uh, and the fact that um, Russell Brand, have I got the name right? He did his book, uh, uh, I think, is it called Unfucked or something like that? And he's, you know, he's clear, he's done this like 12 step thing and he's done it for the, the person who just wants to deal with the problems in their life. But it's pretty much like it is still the 12 steps of AA like how to go through this stuff, whatever your problem is, um, and try to deal with it. And I've recommended that to some people, like, sure, like you, you've got problems. There's this book by Russell Brand, go and have a go at it, like, and see what you think of it. Um, there's, you know, there's all sorts, you know, and there's all sorts of books on all sorts of ways to try to improve your mental health. But the, at, the, at the end of the day, they all involve doing work. They all involve doing hard work. Mm -hmm. um, I think, and you know, if you do the work, it pays off. And if you don't do the work, then it doesn't. Since when uh, uh, um, were you sober? February the fourth. What year are we in? Twenty twenty. We're in twenty twenty one. February the fourth, two thousand eleven. There we are. No, hang on, 2011? Wow, 10 years. Oh, I can't do the maths. I've been sober for nearly 10 years. I can't do the math. Oh, it's 2022 then. 2020, February 4th, 2022. Nearly 10 years, yeah. Oh, so uh, since then, uh, you haven't drank alcohol Not even once. once. Uh, and uh, what happened on February 4th, twenty? um actually so that was my first day sober it was the day after i'd been to the doctors mm. it's the day my friend told me how much i'd scared the hell out of him um mm -hmm. i actually um had a skiing holiday books so um what happened immediately after i went skiing um I had to convince myself not to throw myself off a mountain one day. That was good. Um, um, so what happened? Yeah, I mean, I I stopped and I stay stopped. 
it sounds a bit and the not a you on once. once like i said i had a bumpy road in you know i had a few times trying, trying to dry mm -hmm. out but um once i committed to doing the work and staying sober um i haven't no haven't looked back i can't say i haven't thought about it i was i was very close to relapse over a boy when i was I think three days off a year sober and I messaged, mm -hmm. um, I messaged a few people actually saying, can you talk? And the person who responded was actually my first sponsor, the one who didn't work out. And he's like, you are not going to relapse over a boy. He's like, how embarrassing is that going to be your, you know, I think three days off a year. He's like, do you really want to turn up tomorrow going, I was nearly a year sober and I relapsed over a boy. It's like, you can, a boy, a, a guy, a, the guy I was dating at the time. Oh, uh, uh, um, okay. He's like, are you, I think he's like, are you going to be a Britney? Are you going to be a boo-hoo? This boy upset me. And, uh, mm. you know, it was, it was pretty brutal in some ways to just be like, come on. Mm -hmm. And he's like, what you need to do is go home and get some ice cream and put something funny on telly and get yourself to bed. And then when you wake up in the morning, come and see me. And um, that that is what I did. I actually went to the supermarket and when I stood at the till, I was just faced with all the alcohol that was at the till. And and I didn't, you know, and I didn't, I was really like, oh, there's, there's a lot of alcohol in front of me, but I went home. I ate the ice cream. I woke up in the morning and went, God, what was all that about? And, uh, you know, I, I think, like I said, there was, a, there was a bit of like, I don't know, be cool to be kind in it. I think he did have to really kind of go, look, I mean, you can, you could absolutely go and drink if you want to, but like, do you really want to? Do you really want to throw everything away? You know, the work that you've done, the improvements that you've made, like, you know, think about how you are and all you have to do is get to bed you know um mm -hmm. so that was the closest i came three days off a year and i can't say you know there are sometimes sure sometimes like sometimes i'll go oh yeah a drink might solve that and like no it wouldn't like there's nothing that would be solved in my life by that um and i do have to remember how miserable i was and how angry i was and how uh which, you know, and most importantly how it would kill me you know to be to be blunt like i know that mm -hmm. is the that is the end consequence of it because i've seen it happen that's what happened to my dad um and mm -hmm. i don't want that wow and uh, when you mean sober for 10 years uh you not only no alcohol did, did you take anything else so the the things I only allowable stuff. So as in medication, so antidepressants. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a, um, it's a bit of an odd one. Some people have a personal opinion that it's a mind altering substance because what they talk about in sobriety mm -hmm. and recovery is no mind altering substances of any kind. Um, however, the the what they call the Big Book of AA, it's really clear. Like we are not doctors. We do what our doctor tells us. And if our doctor tells us we need a medication for our health, then we take that medication. If, um, 
if you were somebody who had a problem with painkillers um, or opiates maybe, then you should maybe be very careful about taking um, codeine, morphine, Valium, benzos, like all these things. But you know, I've known somebody in recovery who um, they screwed their back up really badly and they were prescribed um, Valium. And that's one of the things that they used to do when they were when they were active in their addiction, they used to take Valium. And they were really nervous about it. And people said, you've got to have it. That's what your doctors told you to have. So you, you take what you're prescribed and you keep doing everything else to, you know, to stay sober. So I have antidepressants. I've stayed on them. Uh, caffeine is an allowed one. <laughs> we might argue. Sure. I mean, it is mind altering. You get buzz, you get a buzz off caffeine and sugar is mind altering. It does change your mood. Um, these and, and nicotine, I think are probably allowed things, but I don't smoke and have never, have never smoked. So, um, yeah, I mean, those are the things that I've had. Um, nothing else. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, are you okay with uh, uh, sitting on the same table when other people drink? Yeah, it's it's not a problem at all. I, I um, again, there's, there's there's a line there's a line about everything in recovery, but it's easy, you know, like it's um, it's like the naked flame. Like we know we can't touch a naked mm-hmm. flame. It's not safe for us. It doesn't mean other people can't be around the naked flame or, or whatever the analogy is. So, um, no, it doesn't bother me. Drunk people do bother me um, for two reasons. Uh, one is they are exceedingly boring. <laughs> the other is that they are. Um, I fear that they may be unpredictable. And mm-hmm. this is something about how my, my dad was. His alcoholism was very unpredictable. Um, and I think, you know, there's just some fear that in, that my response is anything could happen here. I don't know what's going mm-hmm. to happen and I don't want to be around when it does. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, part of me has thought about trying to do some trauma therapy about the stuff that happened in childhood and, mm-hmm. and you know, and how I still react to it. Um, mm-hmm. But also, it's not unreasonable to say, do you know what, you're drunk and I don't want to be around this. I have I have the choice to leave this situation and, and I will. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people just mm-hmm. um, uh, going out with friends, you know, I've told them, if you get really drunk, I'll go home. But probably I will be tired before you get really drunk and I'll go home anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, same with my partner. He tends to not get drunk anyway. In fact, I think I've only seen him really drunk once and he was hilarious. He was very sweet. Um, he was very cute. He did get a bit annoying and repetitive, but um, on the whole, he knows, like, if he's drunk a lot, he goes and sleeps in another bed. He doesn't, um, he doesn't bring it around me. Yeah. Wow. So, um, I, um, what I was going to ask... So um, when you now, when you deal with uh, your alcohol issue, do you still feel it's like everyday battle or it's just now, now on autopilot? I, I'd say it's, it's not an everyday issue. Um, autopilot's a bit of an odd word. Like, I have to recognize that I am an alcoholic. I have to recognize mm-hmm. that I cannot drink. 
Um, I have to think about that. I mean, like, so alcohol and food is, um, it's a bit of an odd one. Like, I have realized now, like, I, I wouldn't have done it in my early days because I just didn't want to be faced with the smell or the taste of alcohol or more importantly to spend 48 hours obsessing about the fact that I've had alcohol so that's you know that was something about mental health it's like if I had accidentally consumed a tiny amount in food I just obsess about it and that's not healthy so um I'm not quite like that now I think um I've had bites of things and you go oh I've just eaten mince pies actually you know we're getting to christmas so i've just eaten something uh like that's clearly had alcohol in it so i just don't eat anymore um so i'm kind of watchful in that respect uh, respect um i now i drink like alcohol-free beers mm-hmm. um i would ideally have the zero zero like the absolutely zero percent stuff but sometimes mm-hmm. i've also had the less than 0.5 percent i have one of them Mm. um but i know okay i will i will have one of them i shouldn't uh, i i don't mm. want to have more cuz like there's still some trace amounts of alcohol in it um mm. so okay that bit's on autopilot i think you know the other side of it is um i still have to look after my mental health um i think the the mental health problems and the alcoholism go together um yeah. they they talk so in AA you took the, there is talk about alcoholism as a is a physical mental and spiritual illness and the spiritual mm-hmm. bit is the whole and the soul i think is an easy is, is an easy way to call it you know we try mm-hmm. to fill this void in our lives the physical bit is it can be addictive for sure um mm-hmm. and the mental bit is it, all the stuff that goes on in our head and mm-hmm. um I, this is, this is another way that I recognize these people in the world that there is stuff that goes on in an alcoholic or addict's head that does not go on in normal people's heads. Um, I didn't realize that before. It's only when I heard other people talking about it, I was like, oh, you think these crazy things too. It's not just me. Um, and I don't mean crazy in a bad way. I just mean like this stuff that I always was like, what is this stuff that's going on in my head? Like this constant inner dialogue. Um, you know, this, uh, I mean, some would say like a, a schizophrenic dialogue or the devil on one shoulder, the angel on the other. I mean, it was exhausting, this constant mm-hmm. arguing with myself. And now, you know, these days it can be there a little bit, but like if if my mental health is in good shape, it's, it's not there as much, you know, sometimes occasionally I get into this argument with myself, which probably tells me, Oh, you need to do something to take care of yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. because this, this arguing only happens, um, when you're not in a fit, fit state, that might also be practicing arguments with other people as well. Actually, (laughs) if I start practicing arguments with other people in my head, there is something not good in my own mental health. (laughs) It's, you know, it's odd, but you know, finding people like, do you practice arguments in your head that you're going to have with other people? Because you have to win them. Of course. Um, no, no crazy people do this like my, like myself. Um, and again, I don't mean crazy, like in a a pejorative way, but it's like, it's a, like, it's a signal, like, 
there's something unbalanced about our mental health. If, if, if that is the, the line of thought that we're engaging with, and I think, you know, when your mental health is good, those lines of thought just don't tend to help happen um, as often. I don't think it's for crazy people. I think everyone has it. And uh, for example, when this kind of dialogue happened, for me, now as a, a comedian, I just write it down. It's material. Yeah. I think to have a <laughs> <laughs> to have a creative outlet is very important uh, because then you see yourself not as crazy but as uh, being creative. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting take on it. I mean, I'm sure, like when other people hear it out loud, it is kind of funny, and I think it's, I mean, it's both funny because you hear the. The, the stuff that's gone in, on in somebody's head is sometimes ludicrous, but you're right. It's also funny because the same thing goes on in other people's heads. And I think that was another thing that one of the powerful things um, in recovery, you tell these stories and people laugh. And, and at the beginning, it's a little bit unknowing, like, you're laughing at this stuff that's going on inside me. And they're like, no, 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 mm -hmm. we're laughing because that stuff's going on in our heads as well. And like, it's, it's just how we are. Mm -hmm. And it is, and it is kind of, it's funny because it's funny. It's just like, there's nothing rational about it. There's stuff that's going on in our heads. And like, if you laugh at it, like, great. Okay. Like it takes the power out of it a bit. Like it shouldn't be so serious. Um, mm -hmm. And um, look, I need, uh, I think one thing, like it's not to go too dark about things, but like there are days when that voice is, I don't want to deal with this. Like, it's probably just easier to kill yourself. And, and it seems like a really rational thought. And like, you know, a new bit is go, head's going, well, really? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely the solution. It must be the solution. And again, you, as you say that out loud around other alcoholics and I, mm. yeah, we get that voice too. This sometimes. sounds super normal. Like, uh, uh, like uh, there are lots of comedians talking about uh, like uh, ways like this. For example, they talk about uh, the the voice ask them to go go jump from the window, and the other voice says, "How about uh, let's eat the ice cream and watch uh, the the last episode of a Squid Game and uh, and uh, leave the suicide to tomorrow." Yeah, and it's exactly, and leave it till tomorrow. That is like, put it off because probably tomorrow you won't feel like that. And probably in 15 minutes time, you won't feel that. And they do, I mean, I think with teens, there's this talk about, it's like a very impulsive thing quite often for teenagers to, to recognize actually like one minute, that is what my brain is saying to me. And the next minute, that is not what my brain is saying to me, but it's, um, again i think engaging with other people like okay you have that voice as well right okay and you know they said look you just have to you just have to ignore that voice for today um mm -hmm. go and speak to people go and do something go and distract yourself like probably don't sit at home alone with it like that's probably not the best thing to uh to do but recognize that um it's it's just one voice and um i think um you know, going back to this, like I, I, again, like people find the God thing in AA like a bit weird, but um, some people talk, I heard about this, like the voice of God is the voice of good. And you have these two voices inside of yourself. You have the voice of good and you have the voice of bad, I think, actually. And if you spend time nurturing your mental health, the voice of good is the one that is loud. You know, the voice of good is the one that you hear to yourself most often. Um, and it's the one that wants good things for you. And if you, 
you know, if you want to see God as a loving and kind entity who just wants the best for you, um, this thing that you hear um, mm-hmm. is good, is, is God. And like, if you're, if you don't look after yourself and your mental health, then sure, the bad one is the loud one. The bad one mm-hmm. is the one that when I properly, like, I feel like I relapsed, like the time that I was determined to stay sober and stuff happened and and I just went out and drank because mm-hmm. that voice was going, you should just go and get fucked up drunk. Mm-hmm. Like that is the solution right now. And there was no, the other voice was not there going, this is a bad idea. You don't want to do this. Um, like that was the last one before I got into AA, mm-hmm. but like I can look back and just go, absolutely. The voice that I was listening to then was was the bad voice. It was not the one that wanted the best for me. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the one that I have to work to make sure um, doesn't get to maintain its presence in my head all the time. Wow, cool. Uh, thank you for being so um, open uh, to talk about your uh, issues with uh, alcohol. Um, I have uh, if, uh, like uh, one question to close this session. Um, I, as you said, like you cannot offer people help before they are ready to help themselves. Um, and it took you a long time to really realize you, you are uh, alcoholic. Um, so for those people who not yet uh, realize they are alcoholics, uh, do you have anything to say to them? Uh, and uh, uh, oh, for people who have those type of uh, friends around them, what's the best thing they can do? I think if you yourself think you maybe have problems, the question to ask yourself is, is my alcohol or drug consumption costing me more than money this is a very i think important question like when it's costing you relationships your job and so on that's the point that you maybe want to think about like i need to do something about it for the people who have these people in their lives i mean what happened to me was my husband then husband going is it time to do something about it yet? And the times I said no, he did not push it. Because mm-hmm. that is what he was told to do. You know, his friend said, look, at Ben's worst points, ask him if he wants help. Because <laughs> at the worst point is the point where you might um, change your mind. Um, you know, and if he says no, don't press it. And I think if you can do that same thing with the the, the people in your life, look, uh, for the 12 step programs or even not there's a lot there's a lot of other ways to to find recovery um from from drink and drugs uh, around i i think uh, you can find these on the internet um and if that person turns around and says yes i want help that's the point that you can go i've done a bit of research why don't you try out this thing um and maybe they say yes. And if it doesn't work out that time, don't berate them about it. Mm. Like a lot of people, I know a lot of people bounced 
bounced, bounced, and they were in and out, you know, and they got, and they did, but they did get there. A lot of people do get there, but they don't get there because of people pressuring them to do it. They get there because they want to do it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so the same thing is that if, if your friend or family member is, is kind of bouncing around, also don't enable them. I think, you know, I, you can just be like, hey, look, you know, there's a that thing that you can do. And that's and that's what I can offer you, like to to support you in doing that mm-hmm. thing. But I also don't want to become involved in your drama. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, alcoholics. That's there is a lot of drama. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to be involved in that drama. I think unless they really, really care about somebody. Um, mm-hmm. Cool. Th- thank you so much. Uh, I I realize that I um, uh, now I know what I wanted to talk with you. You said you want to. Um, uh, consider to join some trauma therapy to deal with the trauma you had uh, of your dad being alcoholic um uh, do you are you aware of this type of a support group called uh, adult children of uh, uh, alcoholic parents yeah yeah it's on the like at some point maybe i deal with this mm-hmm. i've got some friends who did who did uh, aca mm-hmm. and they said it was amazing yeah. actually um they really, they really found a lot of peace and benefit through that, you know, because this stuff lasts, you know, it sticks with us. It really does. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but I still go there going, am I ready to deal with this trauma yet? Yeah. Uh, it comes back to that hard work. And I know I said, like, you've got to invest the hard work. And there's some bit that me goes, I am not sure yeah i am i am ready to touch that thing maybe you get your housing situation done and the renovation everything done maybe at one point you uh, have the capacity yeah cool uh please keep me posted if you start uh, that part of the journey cool cool, cool, we'll cool. thank you so much for doing this and uh, i hope you have a nice day there uh yeah, talk with you soon. Bye-bye. Awesome. Thanks, Thank Manny. Don't hang up yet. <laughs>